Over recent years, WGTD Morning Show listeners have heard extensively about the impressive legacy of Racine Vocational Ministries led by James Schatzman, a group which has done such tireless work to help those that have recently been incarcerated find employment and a meaningful place in society upon release. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to explore this topic on sort of a broader scale with author Jeffrey Korzenik, the author of a remarkable new book called Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community. Jeffrey Korzenik is chief investment strategist for one of the country's largest commercial banks, and uh, he has appeared frequently on Bloomberg, Fox Business, CNBC, uh, and very much in print media as well, talking about various aspects uh, of our economy, and in particular, issues related to the labor market and how the criminal justice system impacts our labor market. He is a uh, newly elected member of the Council of Criminal Justice, and uh, his new book, uh, published by HarperCollins Leadership, is again titled Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community. Jeffrey Korzenik, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here with your listeners. I'm really glad we can have this this conversation. Um, I want to give you a chance, first of all, right off the bat, to talk about a couple of the things that this book is not. Early in the book, you kind of talk about a, a couple of different approaches that you considered and perhaps even embraced for a time, but ultimately discarded in, in order to write the book Untapped Talent that you ultimately wrote. Just talk for a moment about a couple of the books that ended up not getting written and, and, and why you kind of went through that process of kind of figuring out what kind of book you were destined to write about this important topic. Well, I, I started out, I think, uh, I, I'm a big fan of creative nonfiction, and, and I love these sweeping tales that read like a mystery novel and are very gripping and ultimately uh, cover a, uh, a nonfiction topic. Um, so it, it's not that, I'm afraid. I wish I, I, wish I uh, could have made it that. Um, it is not a book about the ethical case for hiring uh, people with criminal records. I think uh, many people have stated that very eloquently, and uh, that's not what I'm writing about. It's not a book about um, racial justice per se. Um, it's really uh, a how-to guide. And uh, my, my target audience, but it's certainly not exclusive to this audience, is business owners who are running out of labor. And the uh, idea was that they needed a practical guide to how to actually consider this for their organization, for their enterprise, and how to go about doing it. Now, I personally believe that if, you, if more employers follow this path, we will solve a lot of our social and racial justice problems in the United States, but the path has to be paved by the business community and for that to happen, it has to stand alone as a business case. And uh, my, my experience was that the business community needed an in-depth practical guide to, to um, doing this. Um, that, that being said, it's really a, a book that would be appreciated by people who want to have a better understanding of our criminal justice system, 
to have an understanding of the pathway and also uh, a sense of who people who are touched by the criminal justice system are, how we could get to this point of uh, mass incarceration and mass numbers of people who've been uh, justice impacted. So it's a very pragmatic guide, not a uh, ideological, uh, uh, not an ideological argument. It's meant to uh, to have a, an actual impact in our communities and in our business community. One thing I found very touching is that although I think you have very correctly correct characterized the intent of your book and its focus, uh, actually ahead of even the preface of the book, is a very special note that you have written to a potential reader that is not the owner of a business or otherwise those for whom you maybe primarily uh, intend the book. Uh, Explain to our listeners about this initial note in your book and why it's there and what it says. Sure. It's... uh entitled A Note to the Currently Incarcerated. And uh, my belief is this is the only business book ever written that starts out with a note to the currently incarcerated. <laughs> but that was, that was very important to me. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I have met who have uh, come out of uh, prison, who have come home from prison after multi-decade sentences. And typically they went in at age 18, at age 19, 20, and all of them have told me, when I went behind bars, I thought my life was over. And I don't believe any 20-year-old or 19-year-old should ever think their life is over. And that sense of hopelessness that pervades people who have been impacted by the justice system um, is really upsetting to me at a personal level. I, I'm a father of young men. Um, I understand the kinds of mistakes young men can make uh, in particular, or that we as human beings make. And uh, you should never think your life is over. And so I wanted to help people who are currently incarcerated understand that there's a path forward and that they should not give up uh, hope. And uh, uh, w- one of the responses I've gotten from my earlier work writing columns about this, I'd get letters from prison, and um, one really touched me, uh, someone in a federal facility in Colorado who said that my article then in Barron's Financial Magazine uh, was uh, hung up on the library wall, and he said, it gives all of us in here hope. And uh, so I wrote uh, a two-page note to the currently incarcerated, which essentially says, I understand that you believe you are a burden uh, to yourself, to your family, to your community, to your friends, to your country. And uh, I I say very specifically, you're not a burden. You're a resource. And I talk about the ways that they should understand that they are a resource. But then there is a a gentle admonition to to do something to show, help employers see that you are a resource. So whether it's dealing with emotional management or a history of trauma, use the opportunities that are often available in prisons to... um, to do that, uh, to further your education if possible, to get vocational training if possible, take advantage of all those opportunities so you can help show employers, prospective employers, that you are someone other than someone defined by their worst mistake. Mm. At one point in this note you write, and again this is to the currently incarcerated who might be reading your book, you write, realize that employers first and foremost care about the character of the person they employ. The only thing they may know for sure about you is your mistake, and that it is uh, 
and that it is an obstacle. You can help. And, of course, you go on to outline some of the things that someone who is incarcerated can do to help demonstrate uh, to the world, to their family, to their friends, but in particular to potential future employers that uh, their character cannot be solely defined by a mistake that they may have made. It is uh, such a critical issue, and I'm not sure every employer really thinks they're hiring on, on character, but when you boil down to the characteristics of what you want in a long-term employee, it tends to revolve around be honest, do the right thing, um, act, um, act responsibly, um, ask for help when you need, uh, if you need help or don't know something. And all of those things um, ultimately boil down to questions of character. And that's why a criminal record is such an insidious obstacle, because it predefines applicants to many employee, employers in an unhelpful way. We're speaking with Jeffrey Korzenik, and we're talking about his brand new book called Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community. Uh, ahead of us exploring some of the content of the book, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about when and why, under what circumstances, this issue became so tremendously important to you. And maybe even ahead of that, maybe a very brief sketch would be helpful in terms of what your professional life has been and represented, and then at what point in your professional career uh, this issue uh, became uh, so important to you. Uh, I am a uh, traditional Wall Streeter. I had my first uh, job in the industry, and uh, I'm dating myself with this a little bit, uh, but some of your listeners will, will remember this name. I worked for my first job was uh, working for E.F. Hutton uh, in New York City, a, uh, a long, long ago but storied uh, Wall Street firm. And my whole career has been in uh, the study of uh, investment markets and helping, uh, ultimately helping advise uh, investors in, in how they should approach and, and, and uh, approach investment markets. My uh, current role is uh, leading a team that advises on the asset allocation of over $45 billion in investment assets on behalf of our clients. But to advise on investments and to understand the investment markets, you have to understand the economy. And to understand the economy, you have to understand what's going on in the labor markets. And for many decades, most of the decades following World War II, we took labor market growth for granted. And labor market growth is one of the twin pillars of, of economic growth potential for any economy. It's based upon uh, how fast can you grow your, your labor force and how fast can you grow the productivity of, of your labor force. And there are all sorts of factors that go into the labor force uh, productivity issues. You know, uh, a lot of it revolves around investment in technology and it tends to be somewhat, uh, somewhat cyclical. But the labor force growth issue um, is based very much on demographic considerations, and uh, that's where you start getting into the problems we have ahead of us. And I first became aware of those problems around 2013, 2014. There was an uh, active discussion in the country about why so many people were missing from the labor force. And uh, economists use the term labor force participation rates, and we had had declining labor force participation rates since 2000, 
And that was a primary reason we had such lackluster growth in the economy uh, since the turn of the century. That, nothing like the 3-4% growth we used to take for granted in the 80s and 90s. And suddenly we talk about 2% growth, sub-2% growth, and a lot of it had to do with poor labor force growth. When I started talking to the companies that we banked, which are uh, disproportionately manufacturing companies, construction, transportation, logistics, you know, the real heart of moving goods, creating and moving goods around the economy, I kept getting a recurring theme from employers. They couldn't find workers and they couldn't find workers who could pass a drug test. So I started looking into these issues of uh, what was driving people out of the workforce or keeping them out of the workforce. And I came to the conclusion that for the first time in at least post-World War II American history, social issues, societal problems were of such a magnitude that they became true economic problems because they were so impacting our workforce. There was the opioid epidemic, which at that time, 2013-2014, was recognized as a social problem but not an economic problem. Long-term unemployment, one of the real challenges after 08, 09 was people got, couldn't get back in the workforce fast enough, and the longer you're out, the harder it is to get back in, and the more likely you are to drop out. And then this incarceration, recidivism, or criminal justice impact uh, on the labor force, and really failing to get people uh, into the workforce, or if they were in the workforce, failing to give them the economic mobility that allowed them to be more productive employers and, and employees, excuse me, and more productive contributors to the U.S. economy. Around the time I had identified the problem, I uh, stumbled, frankly, by accident into solutions. On the recommendation of my wife's uh, niece, I went to visit the King's Kitchen restaurant in Charlotte. The King's Kitchen is... Uh, a restaurant right in the heart of uh, Uptown Charlotte, their, their, their business district, that has wonderful Southern cooking and is staffed largely by people in need of a second chance, either formerly incarcerated, uh, formerly homeless, uh, people who have struggled with addiction. And the food was great, and the service, while not always the most polished, was always it was as sincere and um, really heartwarming as I've ever had at any any restaurant. And uh, that was the aha moment where, where I understood that, yes, there were these obstacles to getting to, uh, that were keeping people out of the workforce, but maybe there was a path to get them back in. And then I started meeting with companies, uh, searching them out. Uh, one, I was very fortunate that one of the earliest companies I met was uh, Nehemiah Manufacturing in Cincinnati. And uh, Nehemiah is... is a fabulous second chance employer, 130 of their 180 employees are second chance. And uh, the founder, CEO, uh, Dan Meyer, is a, is a Wharton grad, so he's a numbers person. We spoke the same language. And I started to understand, as I met more and more of these employers, that there was a true business case for doing this. And equally important, that there was a model for doing it right. And that... Uh, got me hooked. Uh, I started to search out these employers, started to speak about it, write about it. And there's something very, very engaging about watching people transform their lives through gainful employment. And uh, I, I was hooked, and, and uh, that's taken me to where I am today, and I remain hooked on this on this topic. Very good. And I guess at this point, I want to say, and we'll explore this later in, in more detail, 
that one of the things I appreciate about your book is that it is not uh, a book written with, in a sense, kind of rose-colored glasses and unbounded optimism about each and every such hire, that that this needs to be done right. It needs to be done well. And uh, and I really appreciate the, the, the bracing honesty uh, of this book and the fact that you really try to embrace this topic uh, very, very comprehensively. I want to make sure that you uh, speak to our listeners about something that is so much at the heart of this, and that is essentially the impact of the criminal justice system on the labor force. And I think you've already said that was a connection that once upon a time you, you did not uh, you did not fully uh, appreciate. And, and at one point in the book, early in the book, uh, you, you write, we should not be surprised that the criminal justice system has had an impact on the labor force. The magnitude of that impact, however, is shocking. What is shocking about the, the, the scope or scale of that impact, and in what way is it beyond what we might assume to be true? Sure. Let, let me set the, the numeric context, and I know not everyone's a number person, but, but I hope your listeners will bear with me. Our workforce today is about 155, called 155 million workers. We need to keep the economy growing at even a sort of a decent pace. Uh, we need to, sustain, to add two and a half million workers or so each year net to the workforce, just to kind of keep us, keep us rolling along um, at a couple percent uh, growth rate. We have 19 million Americans who have a felony conviction. It's, it's a stunning number. So you get a sense of an economy that needs two, two and a half million workers in each year on average just to keep going. And you have 19 million people with a felony conviction, which we know is a major obstacle to employment you start to get a sense of how this is really impacting all of us, whether we know someone with a criminal record or not. We all benefit from a more prosperous economy, and, and this is a barrier to that. The 19 million is um, uh, a little bit uh, of a dated number. It's probably about a decade old, so maybe it's more like 20 million. You add to that, there are millions of people who have a misdemeanor record or other kinds of justice system involvement, tax liens, things like that, that can also impact employment. Uh, some people estimate that as many as 70 million people have a have a, a criminal record of, of some sort or, or others. I like to stick to that more conservative 19 million number. That That's large enough. When you look at the employment track record of people who have felony convictions, it gives you a sense of how big the problem is as well. The... Uh, in the, uh, uh, if you look at people who've been uh, previously incarcerated, so not everyone with a felony conviction has been incarcerated, but of those who have been incarcerated, the unemployment rate of those who are still looking, who haven't given up, is believed to be about 27%. If you look at the unemployment rate in the first year coming out of incarceration, it's north of 50%. Uh, so so this, is a, th- this points to how badly we are doing as a country in reintegrating workers once they've made a mistake. Right after you spell out sort of the scale of this impact, uh, there's an interesting sort of sidebar of sorts in the book 
in which you, you, you say this, among some criminal justice advocates, there is an active effort to change the language used to describe people with criminal records. Uh, I wonder if you could just uh, touch on what, uh, what some of those possibilities are and, and what you think of them. Well, I, I, I do believe, as many justice advocates will say, that language matters. And there is dehumanizing language that surrounds people who have uh, had a criminal record. In particular, I, I, I think it's, there's, there's something truly wrong with the fact that once someone has a felony conviction, has served their time, whether it's through incarceration or through, uh, through uh, uh, probation or, or, or community service or fines, they are considered technically a felon forever. And that just doesn't seem right and doesn't sit well, I think, with any of us, that someone who made a mistake 20 years ago that earned them the felon uh, title, that that could still be used as, as a descriptor uh, uh, for them. That being said, I've seen um, people use language uh, issues as a scolding tool. And uh, I've been scolded for using other terminology, uh, a common uh, reference to people who've come out of incarceration as returning citizens. I've used that, and someone said they, they've never stopped being citizens. Um, you, you get scolded for everything. And I think it's important for um, people who care about these issues to recognize that just as they argue that employers and society should meet people who have been touched by the criminal justice system where they are, we should also meet the business community and employers where they are. And don't start out a relationship by telling them what language to use or, or how to, um, uh, uh, or scolding them for using terms wrong. You know, some of the recommended terms, uh, justice involved individuals, justice impacted individuals, you know, those are a little bit tongue twisters. Um, I, I, I default to people with records, people to, with criminal records. Um, it is people forward language, but um, I, I think if we can meet employers in the business community, don't start that conversation out by, by scolding and start it instead with meeting them where they are. And then you can gently, you know, they'll figure out on their own what's more appropriate language. You can gently include that um, discussion in a conversation once you've built a trusted relationship. But to me, that's, uh, that is important. Um, I, I have... Um, work with reporters who use the term felon, and, and if they show me a draft and they're using felon, I say, you know, I have no problem with this, but you should know the preferred usage is they change it. I, I think doing that behind the scenes, but don't scold people on Twitter. Don't scold them in public conversations. That, that's the wrong way to go about getting better language surrounding these issues. We're speaking with Jeffrey Korzenik about his book, Untapped Talent how second chance hiring works for your business and the community this book is an exploration of what an important impact uh, more widespread second chance hiring could have uh, on our economy in this era in which we are facing such a a critical talent shortage and mr krasenik i wanted to mention that we actually had a recent interview that explored this in some detail that is this phenomenon. It was a discussion about a recent study that was titled The the Demographic Drought, and it really outlined uh, some of the factors that have kind of led to this situation, which of course was just 
further exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And so that's one reason why in this particular conversation, we're not spending a whole lot of time on, on that aspect uh, of, of, of your book and that aspect of this, of this story. Uh, so one of the points at the book that is quite interesting to me is um, when you kind of pose the question of whether or not every single person is redeemable. And, uh, and you tell us that there are, are people in, in certain nonprofit agencies, particularly maybe faith-based, that sort of begin with that assumption or presumption. And you do not necessarily share that assumption that every single person is redeemable and not every single person perhaps is destined to be part of, of the labor market. Your own kind of personal estimate uh, based on, I don't think, much besides kind of your own experience versus any hard and fast data, uh, kind of breaks it down into thirds when you look at the current population of of prisoners. Would you mind outlining that for our listeners? Sure. And again, you're, you're absolutely right, uh, Greg. This, this is just kind of a gut feel from someone who's used to dealing with numbers issues and I think does have some, some intuition maybe on this. And uh, the numbers I use are a third of the people coming out of prison are immediately employable. They, they have stable housing, maybe have a, a family that has some, some means that can help them with housing, help, uh, they have some education, some sophistication in using uh, all the technology we all, most of us take for granted, cell phones, basic computer literacy, all of those things. They're immediately employable. They may still have problems getting employed. They may still have problems getting advancing their employment through economic mobility, but they're essentially ready employees. There's another third, and those are those who can be made ready. They may not have stability in housing, transportation, even access to cell phone or, or sufficient technological literacy to uh, be a viable employee today, but they can be made viable employees. And then there's a third who are the inherent repeat offenders, um, I, uh, and, and I don't know what drives that. Um, you know, maybe they're just sort of inherently, uh, you know, bad people. But I, I, I don't feel I can judge those uh, those things. Um, but we do know that trauma, particularly childhood trauma, can be very impactful. Addiction is a horrible, horrible disease and very difficult to shake. All of those things um, ultimately seem to add up, at least by my estimation that a third are effectively non-employable. They, they won't fit into the model I'm talking about, about uh, um, finding people who can truly add value to a business enterprise. In that same section of the book in which you talk about this kind of third, third, third uh, picture of, of the current population of, of those who are incarcerated, uh, just ahead of that, you have a conversation about uh, reducing recidivism, and of course, tying that to this matter of of helping the recently incarcerated to to gain uh, meaningful employment. Uh, one of the things that is evidently a source of frustration for you is kind of a lack of hard and fast data when it comes to this really important question. Why is it that that hard fast data should be so hard to come by in terms of of this uh, particular matter? 
some of this has to do with the fragmentation of our criminal justice system. Uh, most people, uh, when they think about, uh, say, the prison system, think about federal prisons. But that's only, I don't know, 7 or 8% of the prison population is held in fed- federal facility. The vast number of people who are currently incarcerated are in state prison uh, facilities. And so you have state-by-state data. Then you have the revolving door of people going into jails, which are for pre-detention, pre-trial detention. So um, you get accused of committing, say, a gun crime. You are um, going to be held, typically held in a jail prior to trial. You may be able to uh, post be assigned a bail that could get you out. Every, every, um, all of this, it comes down to state regulation, typically, or state legislation. Um, uh, but then uh, at, at the county level well, with the jails, you have this population that's in and out very quickly. They might be booked, spend a night in jail, out again. So that's a lot of data collection in a lot of places. And like so many other things associated with incarceration in the criminal justice system, it requires money to, um, it, it requires a real investment in time to collect the data and to get that data in a form that can be uh, standardized so it can be used uh, across all these fractured and diversified uh, jurisdictions. And, and the reality is, when it comes to investing money in this population, it's not a politically very uh, prioritized spending. You know, it comes down to, gee, we can allocate money to your children's school or we can allocate money towards people who have, been made, a mis- who have made a mistake and, and uh, committed a crime. Um, there, there is a limited appetite for making that, that latter investment. As you said early in the interview, this book, above all else, is intended to be something of a guide and an inspiration for, for business owners to help encourage them to at least be more open to the possibility of, of engaging in this kind of second chance hiring. As you kind of spell out how this can be done and perhaps should be done, you talk about a couple of common models uh, that, that often are used uh, when, when people engage in this kind of second chance hiring. And these are models that in your mind do not work particularly well. One of them is the disposable employee model, and the other is the undifferentiated model. And again, you, you, you ultimately point us to a better model than either of these. But before we get to that, uh, explain what these two models of second chance hiring are and, and the problems that uh, you see with each of them. One of the uh, things that surprised me early on in, in the research. I, I bet these employers had this great experience hiring the formerly incarcerated or people touched by the criminal justice system. And then I'd have employers come up to me and said, you know, I tried it, it was a terrible, or you know, my experience didn't line up. And so as I explored this, I came to understand that uh, there are these other models and that many, many businesses have tried hiring from this population and not had success. And what became apparent to me is that the problem was not inherently with hiring people with criminal records, it was approaching it with the wrong model. 
So one of the models, and this is one that has kind of sort of worked for the employer, but just not in an optimal way and not in a way that, that is certainly optimal for society, is what I call the disposable employee model. These are employers who are just seeking a really cheap employee, typically for very, very low-skill labor. They have little interest in developing the careers of these employees. They just want cheap. And in a, in a case of be careful what you, you know, you get what you pay for, um, you tend to have a, um, a very different model. So what you have is low, low wages that are subsidized by things like the work opportunity tax credit. That are, uh, these are subsidies that are available to employers for a limited period of time that allow them to defray their, their uh, wage costs for this population. Uh, think some fast food restaurants might, might, might do this, where low-skill labor, you're not being very discriminating because you don't really care about the long-term future of this employee. You just want cheap labor today. And you'll have very high turnover costs. You will get cheap labor, but they won't stick around. It has worked because we've had an abundance of labor, and you didn't have to worry about a labor shortage, and this was a, uh, this was a way of doing it. I, I don't condemn these employers. Uh, at least they were giving a chance for people to get on their feet, even if they didn't offer them much of a long-term future. The other model is also one that doesn't have bad intentions, and I don't condemn it, just doesn't work. And these are models where uh, the employer has a long-term interest in their employees' advancement and welfare, but don't differentiate the backgrounds of these employees from more traditional employees. So, for instance, they might try to be selective, find the person who is a good fit and someone who could be a good potential long-term fit for their companies, but they don't make the types of appropriate accommodations and support mechanisms that are needed for people who have criminal records and particularly for people who come out of deep, deep poverty, which, which is typical for, for this population. What happens then is you have you know, those third of people who came out who were truly ready for work, who, were, um, uh, who had stable housing and computer literacy. Um, those would work in that kind of model. But those that needed help in other ways would fail. And you'd have, as many employers told me under this model, people with criminal records were either their best employees or their worst employees. And while you might think that uh, the average of best and worst is average, it's really not from an employer's perspective. If you have one bad employee, undoes the good of multiple good employees. Mm-hmm. So businesses that have tried this undifferentiated model typically come around to not hiring anyone with criminal records. We tried it. It didn't work. They were my best or my worst. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't worth it, and they've stopped doing it. Uh, so, so those are the two models that, that don't work particularly well. And it's important for people who are advocating for uh, second chance hiring to recognize that employers have tried it in many cases and it didn't work. And we have to understand why and have to gently explain to these employers, it wasn't the people, it was your process. Right. And and in particular, I mean, I think most of us would sort of, sort of recoil from the disposable employee model. I mean, we can understand how a company or a business might might make such a choice, but I think very few people would 
in a sense, approve of that in terms of kind of the ethics of, of treating this population in that way. But I think a lot of people would find at a glance this undifferentiated model to be positive in the sense of, 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 of not kind of dwelling on the labels of people and it give everybody a chance and so on. And we're all at the, we're all mostly the same at the heart and so on. And, uh, but as you've just sort of spelled out, Often, when it comes to the the, the, the realities of real life, uh, that undifferentiated model uh, ultimately does not work out all that well. In its place, you propose something that you call the true second chance model. A bit more complex, but in your mind, something likely to be much more successful. Explain to our listeners what the true second chance model looks like. Sure. It really is a basic approach to any kind of talent pool. It's finding out, having a process for finding out who is a good fit and ready for employment in your in the roles you have available. But then the critical differentiator is this understanding the gaps you have to solve for. How do you help this employee succeed? And most companies have a structure like that for traditional talent pools. They go and recruit at a college, and they've made clear what uh, their expectations are for you know, who they're looking for, what majors it might be. And then they have training programs that allow people from these uh, backgrounds to succeed, to fill the gaps in knowledge they didn't have, uh, training, you know, technical training or, or, or um, some acculturation training, whatever it takes to help make those people successful. The same is true with this population. But you have to understand that the referral sources are going to be different. You can't go typically to a local college or university and have a, a, um, a placement office that's going to help you. You have to find other referral partners. And typically these are going to be uh, nonprofits that are engaged in prison ministry or are engaged in workforce development, sometimes within the prison system sometimes uh, after release. Sometimes it's these things like workforce boards and American job centers, which are federally mandated um, uh, centers that are available in, in, in just about every business uh, marketplace around the country. And then the, the trickier part is recognizing the kind of accommodations or training that is needed to support these employees. Some of it is, is directly related to having a criminal record. So, for instance, having flex time to meet a parole or pro- probation officer or having a facility, a, a meeting room at work where a parole or probation officers can come and meet with their, their clients. Uh, you know, that's a basic one. But often it's uh, just people who are in the criminal justice system came from lives of such poverty and limited possibility, lives of limited possibility and lack of mentorship. They don't know what they don't know. Basic things like if your car breaks down. If my car broke down I would, and I was expected at a workplace, I would pick up the phone, I'd take my cell phone, I'd make the call. I call a tow truck. I get my car taken to a, 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 a you know to a, a repair facility. I give them my credit card and I grab a Lyft or an Uber. But if you've come out of prison or have this life of, of real poverty, uh, you may not have a cell phone. You may not have the life experience to know to place that call. 
you might not have a credit card uh, to pay for a tow truck and repair. You might not have a few hundred dollars in the bank that would be needed for that. And sometimes people from this background don't know any of these things and will simply not show up ever again and just say, well, I guess I can't work anymore. That's one example, but there are a million minefields that people with deep poverty and with criminal records have to navigate to be successful employees. And employers have to recognize this, meet their employees where they are, and help them make up for these gaps. And that might be through financial education program, mentoring programs. Some of the companies I've studied have life coaches, social workers on staff, third-party uh, social worker arrangements, all of these things that allow these employees to thrive and be contributing employees to these enterprises. And I should think that in many cases when that kind of investment is made, one way in which it pays off is that ultimately that employee with, let's call it in a sense, special needs at the outset, uh, probably gets to the point where um, many or most, perhaps all of those support uh, support offerings are no longer nearly so necessary, maybe at some point become not necessary at all and can be diverted or devoted to uh, other employees just entering the workforce again under these uh, particular circumstances. Absolutely. And it's also important for employers to have some context for this kind of investment. Employers make investments in, in talent all the time. Uh, and, and substantial investments. I always give the example of McDonald's Corporation, which moved its headquarters from Oak Brook, Illinois, into the West Loop Fulton Market neighborhood of Chicago. They did that explicitly because they were trying to chase executive talent. This is where talent, young talent was moving, young business talent was moving to these neighborhoods. McDonald's spent more than $200 million on their new headquarters. Companies make these investments all the time. This is just another investment that you make in talent acquisition, talent retention, and talent development. You uh, outline many more specifics for uh, employees engaging in this kind of second chance hiring, including uh, some time spent on the screening process, which really, really matters when it comes to this. Briefly, do you want to just say a word about just how crucial that is and what employees can do to make that screening process more meaningful and appropriate? Uh, yes, I, obviously, uh, if you're going to approach this as a talent pool, you, you have to make sure you have the right people coming in. And there are greater question marks around people when the only thing you know about them for sure is their worst mistake and you don't have the traditional resume with a nice clean uh, uh, stair step record uh, of success. So some of this is uh, just starting out with making sure that you have no regulatory barriers to hiring people. Uh, many industries have some regulations that require licensing which may have restrictions against people who have felony convictions or uh, may have um, issues regarding uh, if, if your facility is located in, in, uh, near a school uh, and someone's on the sex registry because of a crime of the past, you may not be able to hire them. There are all these hard barriers, and employers have to start by making sure that anyone that they are considering doesn't trip one of those uh, hard barriers. 
And then it becomes a matter of trying to understand um, what the criminal record actually means and look for signs of accomplishment that may be very real, very substantial, more substantial than traditional signs of accomplishment, um, but, but are not measured the same way. Uh, someone getting a GED uh, while in prison, someone get in, engaging in a uh, uh, programming in prison that's very, uh, that allows them to get vocational certifications. All, all of these things should be understood as uh, accomplishments and should be things people are screening for. And then how you look at the criminal record itself um, requires some uh, some uh, I, I won't say nuance, but some but some real thought uh, in this in this process. Um, does the crime tell you anything about the person today? Um, what was the nature of the crime? How long ago was it? How old was the person when they uh, committed this uh, the, this crime? Uh, all of these things are relevant factors and also are required by the EEOC to meet fair hiring uh, uh, guidelines. But often it is not done uh, thoughtfully or the screening process has embedded barriers that almost always disqualify someone with a criminal record, whether they should be disqualified or not. So mm -hmm. spending time on that process is really important. It's also really important from the employer's standpoint to recognize that they, they should not be compromising workplace safety uh, or, or any of the other concerns that surround hiring people with criminal records. The idea is recognizing a non-traditional background. People have made mistakes. They've paid their dues for that mistakes. Are they ready today? And that does require uh, some new thinking on the part of, uh, of employers, but it's worth it. It's, again, it's just part of this investment process. Right. Real briefly, if someone owns a business in which their employees go into the home of someone to clean their carpets or something along those lines, can an employer with that kind of business think seriously about this kind of second chance hiring? Very briefly. They, they should. Um, again, you have to look at the record, the specific record. Was it a bar fight that got out of hand at age 18 and now someone is 40 years old? Um, why would that necessarily disqualify someone? At one point you say many of the people that uh, have been incarcerated have uh, proven themselves to be expert mountain climbers in terms of trying to build a new life uh create a new chapter for themselves. And of course, your book is all about uh, potential employers being open to the possibility of welcoming uh, such, uh, such, such people uh, into their ranks. Your book, again, is titled Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community, published by HarperCollins Leadership, the author Jeffrey Krasanek. Jeffrey Krasanek, Thank you so much for writing this marvelous book, uh, for the encouraging message that it contains, uh, and as well as the very, very helpful information uh, that could really make a difference for employees that might be considering uh, this possibility of second chance hiring. Thank you for all that and for being part of the morning show today. Thank you so much, and thanks to your listeners.